What he urged us to do is to consider who and what makes urban land profitable for reinvestment. And so we can get away from these sort of moralizing debates about is gentrification good or bad, right? And we can then think about things like urbanization for who? Urbanization against who? And also maybe the most important one, who decides right, how a city develops? Welcome to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast. You're on City Road with Vanella Kernerbone. I'm the head of programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney, and it is great to have your company. Today, Dallas Rogers is speaking with Tom Slater about his new book, Shaking Up the City, Ignorance, Inequality and the Urban Question. In this book, Tom discusses data-driven innovation, urban resilience, gentrification, rent control, racial segregation, and more. It's a fascinating discussion about how urban policymakers and academics use ideas like urban resilience to better understand and address the inequalities in our cities. And now over to Dallas, who is talking with Tom in Edinburgh via Zoom. Well, Tom, it's so great to have you along to the Festival of Urbanism and City Road podcast book club. We're here to talk about Shake Up the City, Ignorance, Inequality and the Urban Question, your brand new book. I don't even know if it's out yet. It'll be out any day soon. 21st of September. Excellent. Everyone should get an advanced copy of that for sure. And you take on some pretty big questions in this book. Actually, you take on things like urban science and urban resilience. You have a little dig at new urbanism. You take on neighbourhood effects. You talk about sink estates and ghettos. I mean, some of these are kind of classic Tom Slater questions. Some of them are new. In the book, what I really love is you travel around the world. We go to Glasgow. We go to Vancouver. Cape Town, New York, and London. And you take a a couple of punches at a few big names, and I'm not going to drop those names here. I'm going to let readers discover those for themselves. And you clarify a couple of theories and kind of analytical tools in this book as well. So we have rent gap, gentrification, territorial stigma, and rent control. But what I really love about this book is really the intellectual contribution And I see the intellectual contribution as kind of holding epistemology and agnotology, if I'm saying that right, in tension. So really the idea of epistemology as the production of knowledge and agnotology as the production of ignorance. And I think the case studies kind of work through these two kind of intention themes. So when you're presenting or clarifying theory, you're talking about epistemology and how we could produce better knowledge about the city. And when you're critiquing certain ideas, you're actually talking about agnotology, about how various actors in the city are actually producing ignorance about certain factors in the city. I think a classic one is like the land supply argument in housing affordability. Is that what you're doing in this book? Yeah. So just to go into a bit of background, maybe I should say something a little about what motivated me to write this book. Some, uh, so my, my first teaching position uh, in academia was at the University of Bristol. And I went there straight from PhD. I was, I was lucky to get a job straight, straight from my PhD. And it was in a school for policy studies. 
And in this uh, policy studies department, there was a there was a wide range of scholarship going on. But a lot of this research that was taking place was funded by various policy institutions. And at the time, we're talking about 2003 to 2008. This was when um, the new Labour government was uh, in office in the UK. And they were talking all about, I mean, every time you heard a politician talk about some new policy, they always talked about evidence-based decision-making, right? They were always, that, that was a, almost like a slogan of the Labour Party when they were in power. And many people who I was working with, not all of them, but many people were doing projects funded by policy institutions connected to government. And what I noticed, and I know this because I actually uh, got a research grant from one of these institutions to do some research on what was called at the time, and still is in some circles, urban regeneration. What I noticed was that it was impossible to ask your own questions. So there were quite a lot of people who were telling policy officials the answers to questions that those policy officials had asked. And any time there was any dissent or disagreement, or if you did what I did, which is where you called into question a set of policies, you would find that the response from the person or the institution that commissioned the research would be, oh, well, we're not going to publish that because that goes against the kind of thing that we're, do that we're trying to do right now. And so I, ref I was thinking about this and more and more annoyed with it as I worked there. And so I actually returned the phrase evidence-based decision-making to decision-based evidence-making. Uh, and I think this was the beginning of what has occupied a lot of my time over the last 20 years, which is a, a critical analysis of what I think we can call mainstream urban studies. So in mainstream urban studies, intellectual inquiry is typically atheoretical. It's guided by the priorities of state managers, business elites, and I suppose the worries of the mainstream media. And that means that the structural and institutional conditions generating inequalities of various types, these just go totally unquestioned and, 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 and even accepted. So in writing the book, Shaking Up the City, I set myself what I thought was a simple question, but it actually turned out to be much harder to answer. So it's why the book took me longer to write than I thought it would. And the, the, the simple question I asked myself was, how are the mechanisms behind urban inequalities and material deprivation and social suffering, how are those mechanisms perpetuated? How are they made invisible? And so I like to see the book as an attempt to expose the rise and spread of what I call in the book vested interest urbanism. So an attempt to, to challenge the subservience of quite a lot of urban research to the concerns and categories and moods of policymakers and opinion makers. And so that brings me to your, it's a roundabout way of getting to the question you asked me, which is about agnotology and epistemology. So agnotology is one of the main concepts which flows through the book. Um, I came across this about 12 years ago or so, and I was hooked the moment I found out about it. I was delighted to find a body of work, not actually in the social sciences, but actually in the history of science. Um, to give you some background, scholarship, as we practice it, has traditionally and justifiably been concerned with epistemology or the production of knowledge. But the world isn't so simple. I mean, we live in, a, you know, there are people who are elected to the highest positions of public office who routinely lie and become even more popular the more that they lie. 
And so agnotology is an attempt to shift questions away from what people know about the society in which they live towards questions about what people do not know and why not. Um, and so that requires us to step up, to, to put epistemology to one side and then look at how ignorance is intentionally produced. And that's what agnotology as an approach tries to do. The term was actually coined by somebody called Robert Proctor, who is an historian of science. And he, he looked for a long time at the tobacco industry's efforts to manufacture doubt about the health hazards of smoking. And so what he discovered is that that industry went to great lengths to give the impression that the cancer risks of cigarette smoking were still an open question, even when the clinical evidence was overwhelming. And in fact, the, the tobacco industry actually produced research about everything except tobacco hazards to exploit public uncertainty. And the very fact of research being funded allowed the tobacco industry to say that it was addressing the problem. And so I looked at, at that amazing work by Robert Proctor, and I started to look at some of the ways in which various institutions were behaving with respect to housing issues and urban issues. And I thought, well, you know, what happens if we bring agnotology to urban studies? And so I started to study the techniques and strategies of institutions such as think tanks, philanthropic foundations, funding councils, university research centres, to try and uncover how and why certain questions are kept off the urban agenda while others remain on it. Mm. So that's a bit of background as to the approach that I take in the book. Okay, so I think we should get into an example from the book about agnotology. And one of the examples you present in the book is about rent control. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So um, for about, oh, God, nearly a decade, <laughs> I've been really interested by the the rise and enormous influence of right-wing think tanks in shaping public policies in the UK. Um, I mean, in the process of tracing the influence of think tanks, I've read too many of their publications. I mean, people are telling me I should get out more. Um, and it seems important to understand how, but because of the power these think tanks have in shaping public policy, it seems important to understand how they operate, right? So, uh, every publication I read, regardless of the think tank on the right, it, it always seems to have the same kind of formula. There's there's like uh, the concoction of a of a falsely balanced debate in which there should always be two sides to every story, regardless of the evidence. They also they pump excess noise into the public discussion. So whenever there's a report, there's always you know, every every news channel is always talking about it. So ubiquity helps pave the way for inevitability, right, in policymaking. But one of the things I've developed a fascination in, which is chapter four of the book, is what really, really upsets the economists working for these think tanks, right? And when I say things that really upset them, I'm talking about the things that result in massive tantrums that sometimes even play out on Twitter if you follow any of these economists. Rent control is, is basically top of the list of things that upsets these economists working for these think tanks. When I started making some noises about the necessity and urgency of rent controls in Scotland, two economists working for a think tank uh, called the Institute of Economic Affairs. They just went totally nuts on me on Twitter. It was about six years ago. They were just not engaged in any kind of debate. It was basically name calling. They called me a communist and they told me that geographers should stick to learning the names of capital cities, <laughs> that geographers should leave uh, economics to the grown-ups. You know, it was quite incredible, really. But 
Hearing those words rent control, if you believe in, say, free market economies, competitive market economies, if you believe in the sanctity of private property rights, if you believe in the idea that nobody should be prevented from making as much money as they possibly can from housing, rent control is a really unsettling thing to hear, right? And I've actually been in, in, a, in professional settings where you know, if you mention rent control, it's like you, you get the same kind of reaction as insulting somebody when you say those words. And, you know, it, it, if you think about it, like it, rent control is simply a quite a small law that protects the rights of people to have somewhere to live. Right. That's really what they're designed to do. But economists go completely berserk. And I ask myself, well, why why are they going nuts on this? What's going on? Well, the strong reactions to rent control are driven by the fact that very few economists ever get past the destructive consequences of what are usually today referred to as first generation rent controls. Right. And what these were, um, th these were a, a complete long term freeze on rents significantly below the market level. European countries imposed these during World War One, but they really took off as a policy uh, after World War II to cope with the relocations of labour during that time and to also ensure affordable housing for returning military personnel. And the problem with these rent controls, they were initially needed, but they were kept for far too long, right? And many governments maintained these controls as a facade to hide the lack of an effective housing programme. And so the consequences for many urban housing markets were very damaging. So landlords had insufficient income for expend for maintenance expenditure, and that led to physical decay. There were mismatches between housing units and tenants and, and reductions in availability to the point of saturation. And rent freezes actually encouraged residual informal illegal markets in housing provision. So these forms of rent control, which basically no longer exist, as far as I'm aware, or they might do in a few residual cases, but mostly they, you know, they're not there anymore. Whenever economists talk about rent control and get angry about it, they're thinking of these kinds of rent controls. So they're thinking about the first generation rent controls. Exactly. And they're making that mistake. Yeah. And so... There are some, there's something else, though. So second generation rent controls. And these are considerably different. They're much more varied. And they're also remarkably, they're quite under-researched. And what these do is that they protect tenants from excessive rent increases by creating a set of conditions for any increases, usually depending on housing quality. And also what they are designed to do is that they ensure that landlords will receive what's usually called a reasonable return on their investments, right? So they are designed to keep both tenant and landlord in some kind of positive relationship, if that's possible. One thing I will say about these is that they're so varied, it's very hard to generalise about them. And they're so different from their predecessors, the first generation rent controls, that they really should be evaluated separately, independently. They're so different. But after reading as much as I could find about second generation rent controls, there is evidence from multiple international contexts that these second generation rent controls, they not only make housing more affordable, but they also restrict evictions, which is such a serious problem in so many cities, either those that happen through rent increases or those that happen through things like renovation or conversion. So agnotology, going back to your, you know, why we're talking about this example, this seems a really important concept because 
economists dominate the housing debate in terms of the policy circles that they move in. And they are absolutely determined for everyone to believe that only first generation rent controls exist. And so I ask myself, well, why is that? And that's because successful state regulation of housing markets is completely opposed to everything that they believe in. And it shatters their argument that high housing costs are all about a simple imbalance between supply and demand. And another very crucial factor behind this agnotology is that there are very, very powerful interests connected to real estate that are sponsoring economists working in think tanks to say the things that they're saying, which ultimately end up forming policies towards housing. So I felt that rent control was the most obvious example of many I give in the book uh, about agnotology in action. Hello, Fenella Kernabone again. If you're enjoying this discussion, make sure you head over to the City Road podcast website to listen to the other six interviews in this series. All the details are on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. We would love to hear from you too, so tweet us at City Road Pod. And now back to the conversation. Let's move on to something else that has also been running through your work for a very long time, and that's the work of Neil Smith and particularly his work on rent gap theory. And what you do in this book is you revisit rent gap theory. You go all the way back to the beginning. I learned some new things about rent gap theory, particularly from the where it came from when I was reading the book. And you say that rent gap theory is still a very powerful tool for us to understand the urban environment today. Why do you make that case? Chapter three of, of my book is called Gentrification Beyond False Choice Urbanism. And what I try and do in this chapter is I use Neil Smith's theorizations on the rent gap to, to respond to the, the mainstream view that gentrification is on balance to be welcomed because it has to be better than the supposed alternative of urban decline or decay or whatever it's called. And, you know, th- this, is, this is the false choice, right? Potential displacement through gentrification or prolonged disinvestment is not much of a choice for people who are struggling to make a life in cities, right? So, I mean, the classic example that people talk about the most when talking about this choice, which is not really a choice, but when they're talking about it, is Harlem, right? So New York City, a neighbourhood that was, you know, for decades experienced severe disinvestment, right, with serious implications for people's lives. And then, you know, from sort of mid-1980s onwards, gentrification very, very slowly gets going. And then it really gets going through the 1990s and beyond. And what happened? Well, people were displaced, right? So people who had lived through those dreadful years of disinvestment for so long could not then participate in the life of a neighbourhood which had had its fortunes changed, right? Because incomers basically experienced the benefits of gentrification. So that's the false choice which I'm talking about. And I've actually lost count of the number of high profile statements on gentrification in the last two decades that have actually put forward this false choice uh, in, in often 
publications which are circulated very widely. So, you know, they, they weigh up the supposed pros and cons of gentrification. They throw in a hu- uh, like a, some half-baked concerns about threats to diversity. And they conclude that gentrification is good on balance because it represents reinvestment that somehow stops neighbourhoods from dying. Um, and it gives op- people opportunities to improve their lives. And that is agnotology again, right? Absolutely, right? And this is not something that uh, is going to go away, right? <laughs> I mean, this this is always the the perspective that I would say the mainstream perspective on gentrification, the most widely held uh, view that you tend to see when you read an article in a newspaper, certainly in the UK about gentrification, is that, you know, there are some problems with it, but it has to be better than if you leave these neighbourhoods with no investment. So Neil Smith's work is absolutely crucial in responding to this, because what it does is it just puts gentrification in a much sturdier register for us to understand what's going on. It totally blasts open that dualism of reinvestment or disinvestment. What he does in a big body of work for, you know, stretching for 30 years on gentrification, he shows how reinvestment and disinvestment are actually intertwined in a process of capitalist urbanization and and uneven development, something he also wrote a lot about. And that creates this uneven development under capitalism creates profit and class privilege for some while stripping many of the human need of shelter. So reinvestment and disinvestment don't represent some kind of moral conundrum. And nor do they represent, I mean, reinvestment does not represent some kind of magical remedy for people who've lived through decades of disinvestment. So what Neil Smith shows, I'll get onto the rent gap in a minute, he shows that gentrification and decline are not opposites. They're not alternatives or choices, but they're tensions. They are contradictions in an overall system of capitalist urbanisation and how, and how capital circulates through the built environment. And what he encouraged us to do, and I think this is the really important legacy of his work, and he had many critics, right? And he had many critics among the left. But I think if you consider his body of work as a whole, what he urged us to do is to consider who and what makes urban land profitable for reinvestment. And so we can get away from these sort of moralizing debates about is gentrification good or bad, right? And we can then think about things like urbanization for who, urbanization against who, and also maybe the most important one, who decides, right, how a city develops. And that was what I think Neil Smith was really interested in, who has the power to shape how cities change. And so the rent gap, uh, which is his most famous theory, what that is, is effectively a theory of how the state provides the conditions for capital to circulate through urban land markets. He had a passionate conviction that we must think more historically and especially more geographically uh, than I suppose a neoclassical economist would when writing about cities. And by thinking in that way, we can understand how and where space is being produced and in whose interests. And so he brought a an historical spatiality to understanding gentrification. He said that we should be more inclined to see gentrification not as something that just happens in a, on a short-term basis, but a trenchant and long-term process. He would ask questions like, so why, why do developers and incoming residents make investments in poor and stigmatised neighbourhoods rather than in neighbourhoods that maybe would be considered less risky? And so he was interested in who provides the conditions for people to invest 
and at whose expense. And that really is what the rent gap theory is designed to, to, to demonstrate. It's a very simple theory that there's been a lot of debate about, but it's really about how are opportunities for profit produced? How do people do that? And what are the implications for the people who are most marginalised in cities? And so I felt that bringing, not resurrecting the rent gap theory, because it's always been there, but clarifying it and making sure that, that we really read the original studies, go right back to where it was formed and think about what it, how it can help us respond to the agnotology about forced choice urbanism. I felt that was an important thing to do in this book. Another thing that you do throughout the book and more in the introduction and in the conclusion is to point towards some new insights that come out of feminist and settler colonial theories. And I just wanted to know where that work is going and where... Yeah. So, um, you know, urban studies uh, is, at the moment, I think, well, critical urban studies is a very rich and exciting place to be as a scholar, right? It's not always been the case in my career that that's, that that's happened, right? But there is a, a remarkable range of work happening in various contexts, which... Uh, sometimes it's quite hard to keep on top of all the debates and all the insights which are emerging. But one of the things which uh, I've been exploring with my students are some of the debates which have emerged among the left in uh, in urban studies. Um, and I'm talking about the debates between those who work with the, I, I suppose you would call it maybe Marxist political economy, uh, so people who are, who try and understand scalar transformations, injustices and violence uh, that are caused by the mutations of contemporary capitalist exploitation, right? So you've got uh, a range of scholars in various contexts who take that approach. And then you've got people who working, uh, I suppose, with feminist, queer, post-colonial approaches to urban questions, decolonial approaches, settler colonial approaches, looking at urban manifestations of things like racism, nationalism, coloniality, patriarchy, heteronormativity. So you have this really rich work going on, which I think is actually, if, if you, and I'll, I'll give an illustration in a minute, I think this work is actually more compatible than people think, right? At the moment, there's a lot of tension in the literature. So a lot of disagreement, a lot of quite um, heated discussion going on about who has the better critical approach to understand the world we live in. Um, some of these debates can be insightful, but sometimes they get ugly. And I've noticed that, you know, that on Twitter especially, there's been some really unfortunate exchanges going on between people who I think if you really were to sit down with them, they share the same politics. And so that strikes me really as not a good situation and, and not a good look given the amount of injustice that we see in the world today, right? So there mightn't be enough um, characters in Twitter to actually articulate the arguments. No, I think that's probably <laughs> it. But <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes uh, if people did not take to Twitter and had conversations like this one, that they probably find that they agree on more things than they think. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so with my students, we've been reading all these papers and exploring these debates and and this really led to some things I say, as, you, as you've pointed out at the beginning and especially the end of the book. And what I think is that I think we need to, bearing in mind 
the global crisis of affordable housing and bearing in mind the global crisis of, of, I suppose, what you might call land dispossession that's happening in so many societies, I think we need to think more broadly about use values. So in, in, I suppose, classic Marxist political economy, a lot of the scholarship which exists in housing and urban studies talks about the tension between use value and exchange value right? A very simple thing to understand, right? So a house or a tract of land will have a, a, you know, a, a use value, which means that it's almost like a, a need, an essential thing in our lives, but also it can be a commodity. And the commodification side is winning. <laughs> and so, and it's been winning for a long time. And Marxist urban theory can tell us why this is happening, but some of the alternatives perhaps uh, are not there, right? So Marx, people who work with Marxist political economy are brilliant at dissecting injustice, but perhaps they're not as good at finding alternatives and finding alternative forms of knowledge. Uh, so a few years back, Libby Porter, who Australians will know well, and Orin Yifakel, they argued that critical urban studies as a, as a field of inquiry across several disciplines has largely seen uh, the perceptions and mobilizations of indigenous people as apparently irrelevant to how urbanization unfolds. And you've also got people in Australia like Nama, Blackman, Thomas, who've been arguing very convincingly that there are radically different politically progressive understandings of land that we can gain if we have a look at indigenous knowledges and struggles, right? And so, I mean, I don't need to go into detail on these because Australians know more about them than I do. These understandings of land among in, that you can get from studying indigenous knowledges and, and struggles, these can actually be useful far beyond settler colonial contexts. And so, and it's not just in Australia, there's some brilliant writing of um, Tanya Winkler in Cape Town has also written some wonderful work on this. Um, so indigenous epistemologies and philosophies for reading land and place and belonging and identity, what these scholars argue is that they can inform a critical urban studies concern with unsettling the hegemonic logics of marketization, commodification, financialization. And what I try and say in the book, going back to the debates I started with, is that this work, which comes from settler colonial context, it doesn't need to be considered as something that is a separate body of work that can never be combined with Marxist insights, right? So if you look at some of these tensions in the literature, it's like, oh, there's just no way that people writing with Marxist political economy could ever find use in this work. And then you know, the same accusations of, you know, are fired in the other direction. But actually, if you fuse this work together, we can understand a lot more about use value. And we can understand a lot more about how use values are socially created, and how broad use values could and should be against the, the, the might of exchange values. And so when I came across this recent work I've mentioned, and the writers I just mentioned, I was, I was excited to see it. And I felt that some of the debates among the left uh, have more tension than is necessary, because if you bring some insights together from different th different theoretical literatures, you can really get somewhere. And so that's how I, I finished the book by saying, you know, we, we need to take to have a bit more respect for each other's work among the left and, and think about how we can fuse our insights together. When you put forward rent gap theory, and I've and I've seen with other scholars talking about gentrification and the kind of need to globalise that 
set of ideas. And I think in the book, you're saying there is something universal to rent gap theory. There is a utility for rent gap theory, kind of wherever you are in the world. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think when you're talking there about Indigenous knowledges, how important the notion of land is to rent gap and how radically different the idea of land is for Indigenous scholars, how we might have a conversation about rent gap theory when what we're going to do is unsettle the idea of land that sits at the bottom of that with, say, Indigenous ontologies. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is that this is not something which is easy to do, right? And there are some, you know, there, there are some difficult hurdles to clear to bring these knowledges together, right? Because one of, you know, talking about land in terms of political economy, the state and rent and all these terms, uh, something which is very different to how land is conceptualized and understood among Indigenous peoples, right? I'm not going to deny that. But I'll give you an example of of where this, um, there was there was something I read fairly recently, um, which was a really, really brilliant combining and fusing of the insights which I mentioned earlier. So in Barcelona in 2015, there was a really big international conference exploring Neil Smith's work on gentrification. And a couple of years later, a book was published featuring the papers. And I wish I could remember the name of the book. I will later. Uh, But in this book, there's a chapter, and I was just looking through this book again recently, and I and I read a lot more closely a chapter that appeared by Deb Cowan and Nimoy Lewis. And this was a chapter on the relationship between gentrification, displacement, and police violence against black people in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, you know, one of the epicenters of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, you know, a, a, a real kind of a, a, a crucible of protest in respect of sort of racial segregation in cities, not just in the US, but far beyond. And what these authors do is that they, they say that the rent gap in American cities should be understood as a profoundly racial and violent effect of internal colonialism, right? And so they demonstrate that Ferguson has actually become a a majority black suburb as a result of gentrification and displacement in St. Louis and surrounding areas. But the shift in the demography is not reflected in the political leadership or the police force, which remains entirely white. And so the outcome is that the political leadership of Ferguson effectively functions as like a brutal internal colonial administration. And so what they show is that the rent gap is all part of the formation of an internal colony, right, which is something I think if you're working with settler colonial theory, that absolutely resonates. Okay, and so Marxist rent gap insights and settler colonial, post-colonial insights were brought together by these authors in this context in a way which I thought was really instructive because it showed, yes, there are different understandings of land, but what happens if we if we think about a place where there's such a struggle and if we think about how the opportunity for profit is created, but how people are oppressed, but also how they're fighting back, 
right? And that's where the, the settler colonial, post-colonial knowledges came in by looking at, the, at how protests formed and how different understandings of land were put against the, econ- the, the sort of uh, economistic understanding of land that had basically caused immense suffering in people's lives. And really, you're just opening up these questions in the book. I note on page 85 that you quote Ananya Roy and her idea about racial banishment. And I think the book really is well-placed to open up those ideas for us. Yeah, uh, Tom, it's been so good talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. And uh, for those of you who uh, enjoyed listening to this conversation and uh, feel like you're going to read the book, um, I would love to know what you think of it because that's why we write this stuff, right? We, we like to continue debates and we certainly like to learn from any critique. So uh, I would welcome any reactions. Thanks for listening to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast on City Road. I'm Fenella Kernerbone, Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney. And if you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget we have another six interviews in this series. Kurt Iverson speaks with Elizabeth Farrelly about her book, Killing Sydney. Preston Peachy chats with Julie Jansen about benevolence. Dallas Rogers sits down with Adam Morton to talk about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. He also talks with Shanti Robertson about her new book, Temporality in Mobile Lives, and Vanessa Berry about Mirror Sydney. And we wrap up the series in Western Sydney with Catriona Mackenzie's Pike on her book, Second City, Essays from Western Sydney. All the details are on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. See you next time. Thank you.